Good morning, everybody. Um, as you can see, uh, I am not Michael, and I am up here, and they have given me a microphone. So, so hold on tight. It will be a wild ride. So go ahead and open up. Um, I don't actually know where you should open up. Let's see. Probably Luke chapter 1. We'll kind of be all over the place today. Um, and so uh, I, uh, I love superheroes. Um, that's probably not a very big surprise to many of you. Um, yesterday I got a chance to go to Lubbock uh, with Tiffany, and I got to go to my favorite comic book store in Lubbock. And I got to sit there for an hour and 45 minutes and just through every single comic they had. And it was very calming. It was very nice. Um, I spent more than I probably should have. Uh, but my favorite part about superheroes is their origin story. Uh, I think about origin stories a lot. Uh, one of my favorite heroes, uh, he's not a superhero. Well, maybe he is. It's Kurt Warner. Uh, Kurt Warner was just this grocery bagger at a, at a grocery store, and he turned into a Super Bowl champion, right? He has an incredible origin story. There's Luke Skywalker from Star Wars, who started off as a moisture farmer and then became a Jedi Knight. That's pretty cool. Uh, you have uh, Batman, whose parents were shot in an alley, and he became Batman. That's not as cool of an origin story, but it is an origin story. And we ourselves have an origin story. All right, we have a story of how God has transformed us by his grace. He's transformed us by his, his love and his mercy and his demonstration of that love on the cross. And we see origin stories throughout all the Bible. We see Israel, Israel's origin story, how they go from being uh, the family of Abraham, this small group of shepherds from the land of Ur, into a mighty nation with a king and prophets. And we see the story of John the Baptist, how John the Baptist became the son of a lowly Levite priest and would eventually become the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. We see the origin story of Jesus, although he has no origin, he's the creator and sustainer of all things, yet he's born in a manger. He's born in human form in a tiny little town of Bethlehem. We see him grow up to become a humble carpenter and then eventually become a great teacher. He's executed and he's buried in a tomb only to be resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. All right, so these stories that we see in the Bible, they inspire us, they comfort us. Recently, uh, earlier this month, we got to go as a student ministry to our winter retreat down in Artesia, New Mexico. And our theme for that weekend was wild and free, as you can see on the, on the screen. We talked about what does it mean to live in the wilderness just as Israel lived in the wilderness Right, Israel waited for their promised land. They waited to enter in the promised land. And we today are waiting so that we can enter in our promised land. And so we can enter into heaven. And so how do we live in the wild? How do we find freedom in the midst of our circumstances? And so first thing we see in the wild is that God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. If you look throughout scripture at the different stories, a pattern begins to emerge these people are just regular people like us. Right? They're, just sharp, they're, they're shepherds, they're fishermen, they're carpenters, and yet God has chosen them to do amazing things. If we chose a word to describe some of these characters, uh, I would probably choose the word underwhelming. Right? They're not anything special, they're not of noble bloodline, they're just regular average people. And as we begin to read these stories, something else begins to stick out, another pattern. These people are ordinary, but God's power is extraordinary, right? It's incredible. 
Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it with us. I'll read it with me. So it says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So Paul is writing this uh, to the church in Corinth. Uh, and he's writing this, telling them of what God is doing in his life. He's in a difficult circumstance, and yet uh, he finds that God's grace is sufficient. He says, verse 8, uh, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness most gladly, therefore. I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness and insults and distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so whenever we read these stories and we see the flaws of the characters, when we see the flaws in ourselves, we can remember that Christ is perfecting his power through us. And that the work that Christ has begun in us will not be completed until the day of Christ Jesus, but he is going to complete it. He is making his power known. We see the story of John begin as the son of a low, lowly Levite. He was born to an older couple whose finest moment came by chance when Zechariah's name was drawn by Lot to enter into the temple to burn incense. But in a moment, the lowly Levite's family was thrust into the cosmic drama, this redemptive narrative in which Jesus would enter into the world that he created in order to free it from sin and death. That there's nothing special about Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth. Uh, they were chosen by lot, they were chosen by chance to enter into the temple, but God used that to give them this son, John the Baptist. We see that in Luke chapter 1, it says, An angel said to him, uh, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of sons of Israel back to their Lord, their God. And it is, uh, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. And we see John was obedient to this calling his origin story continued as he went from the son of a Levite to a wanderer. Next we hear of John. He's living in the wilderness, dressed in camel's hair, eating, wild locust, or eating locusts and wild honey. And I gotta say, there's a lot more comfortable ways to live in the first century than that. There may not have been plumbing, uh, but it's, you could at least eat something a little more better, right? You could at least eat, I don't know, like a fish or something. Right, but John, John chose to be obedient to the calling that God had in his life. He was a voice in the wilderness. In Luke 3, 1 through 6, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region Ituria and Trachontus, Alicinius was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled 
Every mountain will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. And all the flesh will see the salvation of God. John's message played an important role, just like how the Romans created the system of paving roads, making travel easier in the first century. John was there to prepare a road for Jesus. He was there to proclaim the gospel, make a way for the gospel's power that would make mountains low and fill valleys. It would make even the most crooked road to be made straight. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, not just to the Jews, but the Greeks also. It's this gospel that John was preparing the way for. It's the message of God uh, to us, to tell us how much he loves us, to show us how we can have a relationship with him. God doesn't watch us from the sideline, but instead he enters our race and runs it for us. He accomplishes what we could not. He fulfills the law. He's obedient to every iota of the law. And this may look strange. Uh, sorry. This person, John, was preparing the way uh, and made all the strange looks and sleepless nights worthwhile. I said that sentence funny because I can't read. All, right, all, of these, all the mockings, all of the pointing of John, how he was a wild man out in the wilderness, all of that would have been worthwhile because the Messiah was going to come and change the world forever. John wasn't concerned about his appearance. He wasn't concerned about what people thought. He was concerned about what people thought about Jesus. So we see John the wanderer become John the beholder. He's witnessed the coming of the Messiah. His entire life was serving up until this moment when Jesus would come and he says, I must decrease so that Christ may increase. Jesus is the one in which John said, I am unfit to untie his sandal. And he says, I am only baptizing with water, but there is one greater who comes after who baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit. So John gets this opportunity as the beholder of the Lamb to baptize Jesus, to witness the Holy Spirit and the Father testify to the authority and to the deity of Jesus. John 1, 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. We see John being a faithful witness, pointing out those, uh, to those that he had seen the Christ, that Jesus was more than a man, that he was the Son of God in flesh, that he would have the power of the Holy Spirit and that he would baptize in the Holy Spirit. We see John transition from a beholder to one being ushered in to the promised land. His days of wandering in the wilderness were over and he would live out the rest of his days in a prison cell in Herod's temple. Just as Israel was led into Canaan, Herod would be led across the Jordan by a sword. His, his journey would come to an end in this life, but it would continue forever in heaven. So that, I, that brings me to the question, how do we define success? What is a legacy? Michael asked me recently to write a sermon for a funeral. Uh, not one that has happened yet. Uh, don't worry. 
I have time to not put as many jokes in a funeral sermon, um, or at least not be as cringy in a funeral sermon. Um, but uh, Michael asked me to prepare something uh, that I could just use to practice, and so uh, that got me thinking about legacy. It got me thinking about what are the things that are most important in this life. John didn't have wealth or status. He didn't have a nice home and luxury. He didn't even have a head, right? But was John successful? Yes, John was successful. In fact, Jesus said he was the greatest man ever to be born of woman. John left a legacy, and he left a legacy that focused on Jesus more than it did on himself. He said, I must decrease that Christ can increase. And so what is our legacy? As a church, as individuals, let this be our legacy. That when people looked at us, they saw the love of Jesus, that we knew when we needed to decrease so that Jesus could increase in our lives, that we served the weak and the broken, that we gave all we had for the sake of the gospel, that we loved the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and that we loved our neighbor as ourselves. Let this be our legacy. Not our will, but Christ's will be done. Let's be a church that was passionate about grace and forgiveness, a church seen as an oasis in the desert, offering living water to all who thirst. Now that's a legacy. That's something we can be proud of. D.L. Moody once said, our greatest, fear should be, uh, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Um, that's a comment or a, a quote that I have hung on to for quite some time now, and I agree with it wholeheartedly. Right? My biggest fear is that I become very good at doing a lot of things for Jesus and completely miss the fact that I'm supposed to have a relationship with Jesus. My biggest fear is that I go through all the motions and put on all the appearances and never really change lives and I never really share the gospel. Oh, I pulled my mic too high up. (laughs) My biggest fear is that I become a great husband and a great father and forget to teach my kids about their heavenly father or forget to connect my wife to our heavenly groom who died on the cross so that we could be married to him again in heaven. So what we see in the wilderness is God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. And then secondly, the road of the cross leads us through desert valleys and valleys of shadows of death. We learn from John and from the lives of the apostles that oftentimes to follow Jesus means to suffer like he did. In fact, Jesus says himself that to follow him means that we will become enemies of this world. Uh, we can't be friends of God and friends of the world. There has to be a divide. And so we can have assurance that even if we suffer and die along this narrow road, just as Christ died and rose again, we too will rise with him in eternity. That's why we say at every baptism, right, we're buried with Christ and we're raised again to walk in newness of life. We have the assurance that just as Jesus died and rose, we too will rise again. And so despite whatever challenges, opposition, discomfort, or suffering we may face, it all falls in comparison to the eternal weight of glory waiting for us in our promised land. Knowing that there is an eternity, knowing that Christ is waiting for us with open arms to say, well done, good and faithful servant, knowing that makes wandering through this desert a lot easier. Israel would have struggled for those 40 years had they not known that God was going to lead them through. In fact, they struggled anyway. They knew God would lead them and they struggled anyway. And so we can have assurance, we can have 
uh, confidence in that. In every desert and every valley, God is faithful to his promises. This is what Zacharias, uh, caused Zacharias to worship at the birth of John the Baptist. So in Luke 1, 67 through 80, says, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, the, from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy towards our fathers and remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in the spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We see through this prophecy, through this song of worship, that Christ has accomplished redemption for his people. We are a redeemed people. In fact, Paul says that if Christ had not been resurrected, then we are a people to be pitied. But because Christ has been resurrected, we have great joy. We are a redeemed people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. We see again, he has delivered us from our enemies just as he did in the days of Moses. And when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful always. So how are we living in our deserts? As we find ourselves in the wilderness like Israel after they were set free from slavery, how is Christ calling us to live? So the first thing, God delivered Israel uh, and Israel worshiped idols. We see them singing the first worship song at the shores of the Red Sea, but only a few moments later as they get to the base of Mount Sinai, they begin to worship a golden calf. So our question for ourselves is, Do we have idols? Do we have these uh, sacred calves that we've made in our lives? Do we have these things that we've put between us and God? And what is God calling us to lay at the foot of the cross? What is God calling us to surrender to him this morning? For Israel, it was to surrender everything, surrender their culture, surrender their way of living, surrender to the law, And God is calling us that we would come and surrender to his grace, to his freedom, that we would cast our cares upon him in exchange for rest. Secondly, do we bear fruit? There's different types of fruit mentioned in the Bible. Uh, There is the fruit of repentance mentioned by John to the Pharisees. The fruit of repentance is more than just not doing wrong. It's turning from our sin and choosing to do what is right. And so do we bear the fruit of repentance in our lives? Are we choosing sanctification over uh, sin? The second kind of fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. We produce fruit of the Spirit when we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. They come naturally. Those things are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are we producing 
those types of fruit? Are we sharing those things with others? The third type of fruit is fruit of discipleship. Are we reproducing disciples that make disciples? Jesus said in his great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things I've commanded you. And he says, I'm with you always, even until the very end of the age. But the key message, the key command in that uh, great commission is that we would go and make disciples. Not to make converts, but to help people, to train people to reproduce, to uh, follow Jesus just like we have followed Jesus in our lives. The way I think of it is just living life with people. You know, I, I, it may seem to Michael like I live every day of my life with him because every time I get bored in my office, I go into his office and just sit there for a while and then I go back to work and then I go over to his house like every day and I'm sure he's sick of it. But we live life together and I, because of that, I've learned a lot of things from Michael that uh, I wouldn't have learned had I not had that relationship with them. And there are people in your life, in my life, that just want to come alongside us and just live life with us and have hard conversations and talk about biblical things and develop those fruits of the Spirit, fruits of repentance, fruits of discipleship. It's not as complicated as we make it out to be. It's actually just as simple as opening our doors and being hospitable to people. Thirdly, while we're in the wilderness, do we trust God to provide? That was one of the biggest temptations that Jesus faced while he was in the wilderness for those 40 days. Satan confronted him and said, turn this stone into bread. Right? You don't, if you can really trust God to provide, right, you, you won't do this. But that was the temptation, right? Would Jesus trust God for his provision? And Jesus replied, right, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word from the Father so can we trust God to provide? God provided for Israel, but Israel continued to wander. He provided fresh water, manna, and quail. But for every fresh water he provided for Israel, he's provided us living water. For every piece of manna he offered Israel, he's offered us the bread of life. And for every quail, he has offered us Christ's body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. God has provided for us far more than he's ever provided for Israel. He's provided us everything we need to live a life of righteousness. He's provided us everything we need to have a relationship with him. And so why do we wander? Why do we wander just as Israel wandered when Christ has given us so much more? Ephesians said that Christ has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because he's given us himself. He's given us his son Jesus to take our place on the cross. And so I wanted to take a look at the story of Israel, and I figured uh, rather than me just try to summarize it, uh, I would just read it. So if you want to turn to Psalm 106, um, it's a little bit long, it's a, about half of my sermon. <laughs> so um, I realized when I printed it out, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like five pages. But we'll try to get through it quick, um, but I'll try to read a little slow so you can still understand what I'm saying. Um, but I'll give you time to get there. So Psalm 106, it's just after Psalm 105 and before Psalm 107. So, math. <laughs> so, it says, Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all his praise? 
How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I might see prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as, though the, uh, as through the wilderness. And so he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. They, uh, then they believed his words and they sang his praise. They quickly forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel but craved intense, uh, intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So this is, this is the passage that uh, Zacharias quotes in his prophecy. It's the story of Israel but it's also the story of how God is faithful even when Israel is unfaithful. Verse 15, it says, So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. And when they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up the Thon and engulfed the company of Abarim. And the fire blazed up in their company, the flame consumed the wicked, and they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. They, uh, thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass, and they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they des uh, despised the pleasant land and did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness, and that he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. And they joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger by their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed, and so the plague was stayed. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all the generations forever. They also provoked him to wrath uh, at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account because they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips, and they did not destroy uh, the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they uh, mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred uh, his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them, uh, those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them, and however they, however, uh, they, however, <laughs> were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked up their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake. 
and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness, he also made them objects of compassion in the presence of their, all their captors. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let, the, let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Right, God remembered, the faith, uh, remembered his people. He remembered his promises, even when his people were unfaithful. They had served uh, engraven idols. They had worshipped the gods of Canaan. They even were committing sacrifice, human sacrifices to the gods of the Canaanites. And yet God remained faithful to his promise. And every moment where God was close to acting in anger, he chose instead to act in his steadfast love. He chose to uh, treat them with mercy. And so we see in the wilderness that God uses ordinary people to accomplish the extraordinary. We see that the road of the cross leads us through deserts and valleys of shadow of death. And then thirdly, we remember the faithfulness of God and we run the race with joy. I'm going to close with this last passage from Hebrews 12. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of God on the throne. No matter what circumstance we face, no matter what temptation we have to wander, Hebrews tells us, lay all of those things aside and just run the race with endurance. Follow Jesus. Just as Jesus ran the race and as he ran to the cross with joy in his heart, we can look at the people around us who have been faithful and who have been obedient to God's calling and we can run the race too. So we're gonna, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna go into our time of invitation it's a time where you can respond to whatever Jesus is calling you to do. Um, with our students, I encourage them uh, when we do an invitation to just think about a next step they can take. Right? Following Jesus is about taking steps. And so what is that next step that you could take? It could be, uh, for us, it could be joining the church. It could be uh, repenting, choosing to turn away from sin and choosing to do what is right. It could be inviting a friend to church. It could be as simple as sitting with someone at the lunch table. And right, so what is that next step that God is calling you to today? I'll pray and then we'll have time to respond. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you so much that you are so faithful. Lord, you have stepped into our Egypt. You have brought us across the Red Sea and Lord, you have delivered us from our greatest enemies, sin and death. Lord, your deliverance wasn't free. It cost you something. It cost you your life. Lord, you gave your son Jesus, you gave his life for us so that we could have life with you. And as he's resurrected, Lord, we remember that we are resurrected with you also, that we can have assurance and confidence for all of eternity. Lord, we love you. We praise you for your steadfast love and your mercy. It's in your son's name that we pray.